Well, you want some uh, good news? Anybody want some good news? Uh, up on the screen, you're going to see a picture. Uh, we uh, think we have found our worship pastor. So, yeah. His name's Brian Campbell. Brian and Becky, his wife, uh, they have a little four or five month old now uh, son, Evren. And um, Sunday evening, February 14th, we, we check this with our wives, just so you know. We know what day that is. It's Sunday night, and so we did a poll among a lot of women and men, and how many people go out on Valentine's Day on Sunday night, and most people actually do it Friday and Saturday, so we did a cross-check, and we got approval on this, just so you know, all right? Um, Sunday night, 6 p.m., right here, uh, Brian's going to come uh, lead worship. He's going to do it with our team, and uh, he's actually from Akron uh, of uh, of all the coincidences here and how God moved. So this is uh, really, really great. We're going to have to spend about $5 for gas to get him over here, um, which, is, which is nice. Um, what I would encourage you to do is you could Google Brian Campbell Worship, just those three things. Just type in Brian Campbell Worship, or you can get on YouTube, type in Brian Campbell Worship, you'll see stuff. You can get on iTunes, type in Brian Campbell and uh, you'll see a CD that he's put out there, and you can listen to that and kind of check him out. But uh, uh, we're pretty excited about this and um, really believe that God has answered, answered our prayer. But uh, we're going to introduce him to you all here in a, couple, a few weeks. So I wanted to let you know that. Um, it's coming down. Uh, also, just a quick uh, reference. We have our prayer and fasting coming this uh, week. And... Uh, it starts Thursday morning, um, and we break the fast on Sunday morning next week uh, with communion. And I would encourage you to uh, really prayerfully consider that. There is a fasting booklet. You may have seen them as you come in. If you've never done this before, that booklet right there has all the FAQs, uh, frequently asked questions. So it could help you just kind of process how to do this fast, what, what to fast from, and those kind of things. And it gives you more teaching about what, what this is about. But the real desire behind this is for us, and we'll see this in this message here, but uh, for us to really become in tune uh, with Christ. So uh, we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But oh, was that up there? All right. All right, well, yeah, whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me pray. God, I thank you for these few minutes. May your word, more than anything, come alive. And uh, would, it, uh, would it have its effect on us to uh, perfect us in our faith, to uh, make us more like you, Jesus, we just declare this room, this time to be yours, this building, both sides to be yours, and only your truth um, gets heard. No other message but that. Amen. Part of this message, just a little disclaimer, part of this message comes from Todd McIntyre. He came and spoke at our men's uh, conference back in November, and uh, 
after we got done, I just said, hey, man, can I use, there's some pieces of this message I really want to use. And he said, yeah, sure. So I want to give that disclaimer. Uh, the message I'm borrowing from is uh, his message on hidden sin. Wah, wah, wah. Um, yeah, the last two and a half months since the beginning of November, I've seen this passage coming. And um, this has been one of those months where I just, you know, you just have this, you ever had those moments where you're like, you, you know something's coming and God's saying, get ready, get ready. And uh, uh, there's been a lot of confession the last two and a half months, a lot of accountability, a lot of God saying, Scott, don't stand up there. Don't stand up there with hidden sin. I'm like, okay. Because um, when you read this story, and you, you can see why. So uh, it is my pleasure to finally preach this thing and not have to worry about, I mean, I don't want to hide sin tomorrow or anything. Don't get me wrong. But uh, um, you can share in this with me. Story starts off. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted thanks. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, son of, of, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. What's going on? Well, Israel just conquered Jericho. Jericho had been under judgment for 600 years. God said, I will judge them. Gave them 600 years to turn. They didn't turn. And so Israel is there. They destroyed Jericho. And you see right here in verse 18, uh, actually verse 17, the city, God says to Israel in chapter 6, verse 17, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her and her house house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. They go, they attack, they win. Verse 21, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Go down to verse 24, they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and, all, and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. And 7.1 says, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, the son of Carmi, you go down the list there, took some of it. And God's anger, it says here, burned against Israel. And that's how this story starts. It's an editorial comment. We get to find out something about the story before uh, the other people within the story know. It's this little insertion that says, this is what we're going to write about here and see what happens. And so it's this kind of deductive, hey, we're going to talk about God's anger that comes when people don't act faithfully. In verse 2, this is what happens. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and don't worry all the people. 
or weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about 3,000 men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them, chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries, and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. There's nothing about what happens here that is natural. Because if it was a natural plane, Israel should have just crushed them. What's happening here is what we know in verse 1, and the hint is God's angers against them. And so what ends up going on here is God is doing this, even though it doesn't say God is doing this. And how we even know that God's a part of this is if you go over and read in Joshua chapter 2, when, when uh, Rahab is there and she starts to tell people, hey, this is what people are feeling about you guys, and, and uh, says, oh, you, you got to know this, uh, this whole nation, our courage. In verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, when we heard of it being God and what he's doing, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed. Because of you, for the Lord your God is in heaven above and on the earth below. And, and not only that, there's this other moment where when they see that the Israelites have crossed the Jordan, chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, that when the Amorite kings saw this, their hearts melted and they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. So you get over here and, and what does it say at this? The hearts of the people melted and became like water. And you know this is God. This isn't anything to do with the natural plane. This is God, and he's causing this. And what stands out after this is Joshua and his response, verse 6. He tore his clothes, fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of the Lord, Israel did the same thing and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, oh, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say? Now that Israel's been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they'll surround us and wipe our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Stop right there. Don't read on. You know what stands out? The first words out of his mouth is to blame God. Right? Oh, God, why did you do this to us? Now, it's right in one sense to, to realize this isn't a natural thing going on. It's a spiritual thing. But it's wrong to assume that God's just doing it. The one who is faithful, the one who's been faithful forever, is that capricious? I mean, you get the sense that it's him blaming God. How many times do we do this when life goes wrong? We just assume it's God's fault. God's in control, God's doing something, but we never think that it could be actually us and our sin. Never thinking that it could be sin in the camp, 
that causes this. And I am not saying that everything that goes wrong in our life is because of sin. I'm just saying we often don't want to think that it's our sin. And so God responds, and this is now my new favorite verse. He says, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? That's my new favorite verse. (laughs) I love it. I love how God just gives it right back to him. Like, get up. This isn't my fault. This is your fault. He goes on to say, Israel sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. Remember that back? We just read that verse in chapter 6. I won't be with you anymore. Unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. What happened back there is all that, all the stuff that was part of that city, God said, it's mine. And he says, and I want to destroy it all. Sets it aside for himself and says, hey, I don't want anybody else to get this or anybody else to profit for this. This is for me. So he goes on to say, hey, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. That which is devoted among you, O Israel, you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. So in the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord shall take uh, takes shall come forward man by man. And he who is caught with devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Stop right there for a second. God gives him this word, consecrate. He gives him a path back into blessing. This word, consecrate, to be devoted, to be dedicated. He says, I want you to consecrate yourselves, to devote yourselves to me. And he says, and I want you to go now, tell Israel, go tonight and consecrate yourselves. And clearly, God's giving a very pointed specific lesson to Israel about what it means to be consecrated. And Joshua is sent out to warn Israel, so he goes out that night and says, I want you all to consecrate yourselves because somebody took something that was to be devoted to the Lord in Jericho. And whoever did will be burned. And all that he possesses. And sends them away. God's serious about his people being consecrated. It's a word we don't use much. It's a word we don't hardly ever use. We use the word devoted. We use the word dedicated. How serious are you about being devoted to God? Dedicated to him. 
And what God ends up doing is demonstrating his power and his ability to keep people devoted, to lead people into devotion. In verse 16, the next morning, Joshua and Israel came forward by tribes. Judah was taken. I mean, you can imagine this whole assembly. Just think of that. The whole nation is assembled. The heads of the 12 tribes are right there, probably in the middle. And most scholars say he probably drew lots like he had 12 lots. And they just drew and Judah was taken. So Judah then goes, the leader goes and gets all the clans. And so the, the clans come. And so the rest of the tribes part, and now it's the tribe of Judah. And everybody's watching. And it ripples through several million people, two million people, really quickly, Judah. And the clan leaders come forward, draw lots. And it's the clan of Zimri, I think. I'm going by memory. All the other clan leaders are like, right? So then the clan goes and gets the families, the heads of all the families in the clan. And they come forward, draw lots. And then it's down to this one family and all the other families. And there's still tension. And this family of Zimri comes forward. And he brings the men of his family. And this guy, Achan, is taken. And Joshua said, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw the plunder, <clears throat> in the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels, <clears throat> which is about $1,000, and a wedge of gold, which is about twenty-five, um, I coveted them and took them. 25,000, I should say. <clears throat> they are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all, the, with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Probably his wife too. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped a large pile of rocks which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. What Achan does in this story is what every human being does when they sin, since Adam and Eve. Hide. We hide our sin. We keep it secret. You saw it happen the moment Adam and Eve sinned. They hid. You want to hide. I mean, he stole maybe $30,000 worth of stuff. 
started telling all kinds of lies about it, had multiple opportunities to confess. Even while he's doing it, he could have changed his mind, repented, and taken it over to be destroyed. Even when he brought it back to the tent, even that night, he could have said, wait a minute, I should have done this and taken it back. When the soldiers came back from that battle, he had an opportunity at that moment to know what he had done, take it back and repent and confess. When Joshua announced it, this is what's going to happen. He could have taken it back, confessed, and begged for mercy. May not have spared his life and may have spared his family. But he waits. He waits. He was not going to confess ever. He makes Joshua and God do this whole thing. That drive to hide sins, to keep sins secret, is so strong, isn't it? it? It's so deep inside of us. Don't confess. Don't humiliate yourself. Don't admit you're wrong. And Satan's right there whispering in her ear. Nobody knows about it. You can get away with it. It won't affect anyone else. It's no big deal. No one's hurt. Your secret's safe. As soon as you tell it, you're not safe. And you can't tell anyone because you'll get killed. I mean, read the Bible. You can't share this. You'll be rejected. People will hate you. You'll lose everything. It's this huge, overwhelming, oppressive drive. Don't confess. Keep it secret. And God has some thoughts about secret sin. First thought is that God hates sin. Is anybody uncomfortable with how this ends? Like, I read this and I was like, oh my. Like, you know, we talk about Achan and his sin, but, you know, it's just one of those things where you read it, you go, and his sons and his daughters? Do you see the wrath God has? I mean, that's a word we don't use often as well. You see the wrath of God. He stole $30,000. And you think, that's just 30000 What? But this is how much God hates sin. He actually put on pause this entire plan of Israel because of one person's sin. He has no problem stopping his plans for you and for me because of our sin. He hates sin. Paul says he hates even the hint of sin. Thoughts God has about secret sin, he hates it. Number two, thought. We're caught before we're caught. I don't know if you guys saw in the trading post recently, they had a, a little news thing about a guy who had been uh, convicted of felony and is sent to 18 months in prison. That guy was the guy who stole from the church. 
He stole our ladder and he stole a bunch of paint, about three or $400 worth of paint. And what he didn't know was he was caught before he was caught. We got him on surveillance. He came during the middle of the day and uh, they figured out what, who it was by, I don't know how it all came out. I was talking to Roger. Uh, Roger Smith was our private detective and uh, so I can't remember all the details, but this guy, he got caught and because of what he did, stealing some paint and a used ladder, 18 months in jail. He was caught before he was caught. This whole idea of secret sin is huge. It is. It's huge. And, and God, in his word, talks a lot about this idea of secret sin. Look at these verses. Can a man or woman hide himself or herself in secret places so I can't see him? declares the Lord, do I not fill heaven and earth? Hello. Psalm says, you have set, speaking, the psalm is speaking to God, you, God, have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Ecclesiastes says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Proverbs says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Folks, when we sin, we're caught before we're caught. He already knows. He just, he knows. He knows the moment it happened. Now, we can pretend he doesn't. We can just not talk to him, so then we don't have to admit to ourselves that he doesn't, but we're already caught. Third thought, sin will always cost us more than we want to pay. You know, when David spent nine months hiding his sin of murder and adultery, this secret sin, he wrote about it later in Psalm 32, and he said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. We pay. I mean, it was a momentary thing what he did, and he's like day and night, night after night, day after day, could barely function. Psalms 51, David begs God not to take his spirit from him because that's exactly what he felt. God went silent. The personal price for hidden sin personally is immeasurable. And God's hand will be against us until we confess. What's scary is that others also pay for our sins as well. Not if, not maybe, they do. It is a biblical truth. How much, I don't know. It just teaches that it happens. Over and over again, there's this verse, Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20, Numbers 14. It says, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transition, transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. 
In this passage, Achan's sin killed 36 men from a family that wasn't even part of his. 36 warriors, and you think about the devastation of that for their families. And then his sin ends up being the death sentence for his own sons and daughters and all he possessed. Folks, it's just, it's a satanic lie that says our sin, our secret sin will not hurt somebody else. It is. The Bible says our sin can affect generation after generation after generation after generation up to four if we don't confess and if that generation doesn't confess it keeps rolling on it doesn't mean that we are responsible for someone else's sin or will be judged for someone else's sin because the bible is very clear that that's not the case but we experience the curse though from it the impact of it any parents here grieve when you see your sin played out in your kids' lives? I remember the, I can't remember the sin, but I can just remember that moment when I saw one of my kids repeat my own sin. And I was just like, oh no. Oh. I want to turn back to this word consecrate. The bigger story uh, that's going on here is this idea of consecration. And God shutting down the whole conquest of the land and all these plans for Israel because of unconfessed sin. And, and he wants people to understand how critical it is that we stay devoted, we stay consecrated to him. And the only way to deal with with this and if we're in sin and hiding sin the only path out that the bible teaches is confession and confession's hard it's it's i did it right it's so hard to say that i sinned i'm guilty i have no excuse i can blame no one else for what I chose to do and to say it was wrong. That's confession. And God says, you, you want to come back into this life of devotion. It starts with confession. We make this confession to God. As you read through the Bible, you make it to God and we make it to others. And some of you are thinking, well, why would you want to confess to God after what he just did to Achan? And, and I get that. It's a scary thing. What do you do with the wrath of God? But I want you to imagine something. Imagine you're in that scene, Achan, sons and daughters, whole family, wife, animals, everything is right there. The whole nation of Israel is around, and they've picked up stones, and they've declared him guilty, and they're ready to stone him. And in walks Christ. And he pulls Achan out and he pulls the kids out and he says, stone me. And so the whole nation stones him. And that's the cross. Christ taking the wrath 
we deserve. So we will never, ever have to experience the wrath of God. We won't. We may experience the consequences of our sin, but we will never experience the wrath of God if we confess our sins. So the story, you can't end this story as a Christian right here. You have to understand what happens with this whole wrath of God piece. And as Christians, Christ takes it. And it frees us to confess. And so we come and we first confess our sins to God and we tell God, Lord, we have sinned against you. We have violated your commands. And Christ, he comes in and his blood for us, his body broken for us, takes the wrath. And what it shows is consecration is possible. Christ makes it possible. It's impossible to do this. That's, the law couldn't do it. The, the sacrificial system was insufficient. We needed, we needed a perfect, eternal sacrifice. Christ. Who opens up the path to be fully devoted for him. And so we confess our sins, and, and when we confess our sins to Christ, a couple things happen. One, we experience forgiveness. It's an old, familiar verse to many of us. It may be new to some of you, but Ephesians says, if we confess our sins, he is to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. That's like one of those verses you should memorize if you're just starting out as a Christian. And hang on to that puppy because it never gets old. <laughs> it never gets old. You keep coming back and going, oh, Jesus. The verse is interesting because it says just confess. Confess your sins and then it says he will forgive. You know, as a Christian, you never actually, you never actually have to ask for forgiveness. Yours is simply to receive it. I don't know if you ever thought about that. If you truly confess your sins, the following thing is what you, what you say after that is, Lord, I receive your forgiveness. Thank you. And often what happens is you say, Lord, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? He did. It's done. Receive it. Lord, I receive your forgiveness. Another thing that happens when we confess is there's a blessing that comes. Remember all those passages where God showed, you know, this, uh, the curse was passed down three to four generations? Well, I didn't read the other half of it. The other half of those verses says this, but God shows mercy to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Compare the two. Three to four generations of people who refuse to confess their sins and hide it. A thousand generations to those who confess sin and seek him. Three to four generations, a thousand generations. A thousand generations, three to four generations. Which one do you think God likes doing? He loves blessing. And I think we focus on the three to four generations. We go, oh, I can't do it. And God is saying, I already know. You might as well because guess what I want to do? Because when blessing it gets poured out 
It goes on and rolls on and on, thousands of generations. Don't you love that about God? Three to four or a thousand. I love it because I think confession is not the end of our life as we know it, although it might be. (laughs) Confession is the beginning of living. We stop really living when we hide our sin. We do. Because you can't be next to the, the one who is life. And when we confess, then we start to live. And it's just so crossways the way this world thinks. It is. Confession to God brings forgiveness. Confession to God brings blessing. And confession also doesn't stop with God. It calls us to confess what we have done to e- with each other. He says it will bring healing. And one of the reasons we confess to each other, I think, is because we can be deceived and we can lie to ourselves and it's not that bad and it's not that whatever. And when you start confessing to someone who is a mature Christian and they look at you and go, whatever. It's like, oh. Or they start to think, have you thought of this or have you seen that? Sometimes we have blind spots. Sometimes we're just self-deceived. And we confess to each other. The Bible calls us to do this. Confess your sin to one another. We confess because we can be deceived and it helps. Brother or sister can help us walk through that. We confess because it also brings healing. There is a healing thing that happens when we confess to someone else. Someone who's mature. You confess to someone who's immature and they may beat you up and they may scorn. You may get all the things that you shouldn't get. But if it's a mature Christian, you will receive grace and you will receive truth in the right amount of measure which is what we need. So here's the thing. At the end of this service, we're not going to ask for anybody to come forward because you could come forward and it would be way more emotional and and that could be devastating because you could end up sharing all kinds of things that you have not really thought through and prepared yourself for. And you may end up leaving this church because you'd be so ashamed and so guilty or whatever. We're not going to do it right now. We're also not going to have you come forward and just share with somebody who is a stranger because that would be hard. And then how would you see them because you have, this, you have no relationship with them and now you've just dumped this huge truth on this bridge and it would collapse and you'd avoid each other forever. So we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is say, you need to pray right now and ask God, give me a name. Give me someone to confess my sin to who is a strong, mature Christian. And God, I resolve to do that this week. And I will contact that person today, Lord, to set up that meeting. That's what we're going to do. Now, if God's saying, oh, you can go to this person right now in the service, whatever, that's great, you know, awesome. The other thing you can do in this service is confess it to God and quit hiding it. Quit pretending like you didn't do it. He already caught you before you're caught. And so we're gonna spend some time singing songs of hope singing songs about Christ and redemption and grace because we all need it. We all need it. 
And here's the thought that I have just to leave you with. Um, we have this prayer and fasting thing coming up. And there is just this strong word I keep getting. Prepare, Scott. Prepare for what I'm about to do. Prepare. And then this word comes, consecrate. And I think that's it. I think God is wanting to call us to consecrate ourselves, to devote ourselves to him. We've been doing that the last year or two years, building this building, giving and sacrificing in all kinds of ways. But I think what God is saying, now it's time for your hearts. I want your hearts to be pure before me as we go into this building. And I want you to pray. So these three days is praying and fasting for ourselves, Lord, purify ourselves, but purify our church. Purify others, Lord. Have mercy and grace on us. Cleanse us from sin so that we are a people who are devoted to you, consecrated to you, so that you can use us. Really encourage you. Please seriously consider doing this. We don't make anybody to do this thing because it's, it's intense and we don't want people to resent it like you have to do this but we're inviting everybody to be a part of it. I invite the team to come up. Let's just spend some time singing songs of hope, of forgiveness, redemption.